Hey guys, it's Michelle, Leah, and Brandy, and this is Spooky Shit and Tales from the Beyond. So, this week we are going to be talking about crazy survival stories. Leah's going to be starting off. Yes, so I'm going to be talking about Julianne, Juliana Koki. Sorry, that's a tough name for me to say. And I'm going to be talking about the Tam Luong Cave Rescue. And then I'm going to talk about Tom Connolly. Okay. Um, (laughs) First off, though, (laughs) Leah has an announcement. I have an announcement, yes. So after um, a couple weeks of thinking about it, I'm going to be stepping away from the podcast, at least for the time being. Um, It's not necessarily a permanent thing, and I'll definitely at least come by and, like, listen and then, you know, maybe do a couple appearances every now and then appearances you make it I sound say. like it's such a big deal yeah <laughs> like, if you guys are lucky yeah <laughs> honestly it's just the reason why is it just got too much with michelle and brandy's bullying on me so i'm gonna what? Ah, no, she deserved it so it's okay I don't no i'm just bad. kidding um no it's just other personal reasons um it's nothing bad don't worry but yeah anyway yeah bummer vibes i'm sorry i mean it's not like you guys will miss me that much no how do you know you're not somebody's favorite? How do we I know? know? <laughs> we all know it's me. Yeah. Yeah, probably. But yeah. Just kidding. It might be. You guys didn't cherish me while I was here, so now I'm gone. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah. We're going to receive absolutely no messages about you leaving. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to be like, finally, all of the regular emails are going to come in and be like, oh, I love it. I love your oh, SSB yeah. show. It's great now. <laughs> Yeah, can you imagine how we start getting a bunch of messages? You guys are oh, so much no, better about her. Is that going to make you want to come back? Yeah. Leave no. I need, I need the attention. Yeah. Yeah, once you guys start making money, I'll be like, hey, guys. We'll be like, actually, it works better as a two-person show. You know what? It should be interesting. You can't sit with us. Yeah. yeah. But it, it will be interesting, though, too, because I'll continue listening to us. Or to you guys, not <laughs> us. us. Who the fuck do you think you are? No, I'll, I'll continue listening, and it'll be interesting to see how it evolves, because it might flow better even as, like, two people. Um, but I guess we'll see. Maybe I really made the show. Maybe I didn't. We'll have to find out in the coming weeks. I mean, we've done an episode without you before. It's not like this is a life or death <laughs> It is, Michelle. I'm like, we, we did this, the dark web one, although, go off. <laughs> although we're talking about survival stories in nature... This will be Michelle and Brandy's survival story of how they lived without me in the podcast. <laughs> okay. Watch um, it unfold. Leah, just tell your story. All right. <laughs> so, are you guys ready to hear the craziest survival story? It might even be crazier than both of yours. I, that's what I'm going to assume, but... I don't know about We'll that. see. We'll see, I guess. So, <laughs> I was literally reading through a list of, quote, the 10 most extreme survival stories of all time. I read the first one, and I think, okay, this is it. This is my story. Let's do it. And then I get to number two. Nope, this is the one I want to do. And then I keep making my way down the list until I uh, land on Juliana Kopke. And she ultimately is the one that I end up choosing because her fucking story blew my mind. Like, it was just a brief paragraph about it, but I'm like, I need to learn more about this. But she didn't care enough to be like, I should stay on the podcast. She was like, this is just okay. I'm gonna... <laughs> this is a good last episode. Yeah. Yeah, I'm gonna end it on something that really fucking blew my mind. So, at only the age of 17, she had two survival stories. First, oh. she had survived a plane crash. Oh, fuck. <laughs> and following the crash, she survived 11 days in the Amazon rainforest completely alone. With only fucking were... a bag of candy. Because she... of the plane crash, right? 
Yeah, sure. Okay, these are two different things that happen. Yeah. <laughs> Imagine they're two isolated events. She's like, are you fucking kidding? This is the worst 17th year ever. Oh, that'd be horrible. So a little background on Juliana first. She was born in Lima, Peru on October 10th, 1954 to German parents Maria and Hans. Her childhood was anything but ordinary, though. Her father was a biologist and her mother was an ornithologist, which is pretty much, she's an expert on birds. Um, So by the age of 14, Marie and Hans moved the family to a remote area of the Peruvian rainforest called Panguana. Oh my gosh. That sounds right. I die. I die. So they dreamed of turning the home into a research center and continue, and they wanted to like continue learning more in their fields. So that's why they moved out there. And since they were living miles away from any sort of civilization, it was obvious that Juliana wasn't going to be able to go to like public school so they resorted to homeschooling her since a young age juliana had been exposed and learned about countless animals from her parents she was like a little jungle child and that's actually what she ends up getting referred to by authorities and i'll explain that situation in a bit um she, it'll make sense she always wanted to discover more about the rainforest and the animals that inhabited it um, just like her parents. She saw their passion, and then it kind of grew on her. It's cool that she was actually interested, and she wasn't like, fuck you guys, drugging yeah. me for nothing. Imagine, like, angsty <laughs> and stuff, just staying inside all the time. Like Michelle in high school. Yeah, literally. <laughs> so her father made sure to teach her survival tip tips since they lived far away from others. They were literally... We'll probably post pictures on the Instagram, but when I say they were in, like, the rainforest, I mean, like, it takes hours to get even, like half a mile sometimes it's super dense like crazy you have to walk mm, they might have been i, I didn't driving really look for hours to go <laughs> half a mile i just know that they were really isolated so maybe they had like a a path they would take their car and that like, would just get out of the car <laughs> or maybe a boat actually i'm not sure i didn't look into that um so yeah she learned a lot of survival tips from her father because if you're that far out there it's kind of essential just in case anything happens and your closest neighbors are miles away. And then ultimately, these tips that her father taught her and then her knowledge on plants and animals in the rainforest is actually what kept her alive when she was 17. So the family ended up moving back to Lima, Peru after officials, and I'm not sure who these officials are, said that being homeschooled while living off the grid wasn't acceptable acceptable education and they referred to her as um a jungle child jesus which That's i thought funny. was kind of funny kind of sounds like dora <laughs> yeah i was, th- I was thinking i'm literally all- <laughs> thinking of the movie that just came out yeah i was also thinking too of like tarzan like i don't know the research center and all that um i don't know where was you, i you mean jane yeah <laughs> jane was Jane was kind of a little too she came i don't really remember she did <laughs> me everyone Everyone, as in Leah and my mom, used to make fun of me every morning because we would watch. Y'all had the hots for Tarzan. I did not. We would watch a Tarzan (laughs) cartoon, like every movie, and my mom and Leah would mock me and say I love Tarzan and stuff, and I loved his long hair, and I was like, I don't love Tarzan. Bro, that's so funny. I remember that we used to like always harass you for no reason. I just went. That's why I bully you now. Okay, I mean, like, (laughs) that's fair. You had it coming. I did. So, the family would frequently make trips to their home in Panguana any chance they could. So, they would, like, make the, take the flight from Lima all the way back there. Um, Lima is, like, a obviously more civilized area. And then Panguana, Panguana is just, like, dead in the middle of the rainforest. 
Um, so by this point, they had established a sort of nature preserve. Um, it wasn't quite where they wanted it to be. It was like a work in progress, but they would constantly fly back and try to work on it. So three years later, when she was 17, she finished her exams, which is pretty much, it's like you have to finish it to graduate in German school. I think it, I think it's Abby tour. If I don't know. I don't know the German school system. That's literally your thing. Yeah, so I know I know the German school system, but it's weird because she was at a German school in Peru, so I'm not sure if the exams is the equivalent of that or what, but pretty much she finished her test, and then her mother, Maria, originally wanted her to return, wanted them to return to Panguana on December 19th or December 20th, either or, but Juliana begged her to let them stay at least until the 24th, which is Christmas Eve. If they didn't stay that long, she would miss both her graduation and her prom, which was the day after graduation. They're both, like, hella close to the holidays. Yeah, which also (laughs) seems so inconvenient to have your graduation and prom, like, the day before Christmas Eve. Like, can't really. Maybe not people celebrate Christmas there. That's true. I don't know. I don't know. They did, though. So, reluctant. Actually, no. People in Peru definitely celebrate Christmas because I'll talk about how the airport was in just a moment. Oh, okay. So, just a super inconsiderate school district. Super inconsiderate. (laughs) I mean, maybe it was school officials that called her the, what did they call it? The, jungle li- the little jungle child. <laughs> so, reluctantly, her mother agreed that they could fly out on the morning of Christmas Eve. Her father, Hans, was actually still working in Panguana at the time and was glad to be having them back by Christmas Eve so they could spend the holidays together. Um, obviously, I mean, it's not obvious, but um, it would never, I mean, this holiday would never happen together. Um, the mother would never make it home and then. It wouldn't be until 11 days after the flight took place that Juliana would see her father. So... Well, fuck, I didn't think it was that obvious. I was hoping something would happen. I mean, she survives, which is a miracle, and I'll get into the details. The mom? No, Juliana, the daughter. Jesus, so she Yeah. So, upon arriving at the airport that morning, they discovered their flight had been canceled. The weather was especially nasty that day, with dark storm clouds filling the sky. And you also have to remember, too, this is winter, and... It's like a tropical rainforest, like thunderstorms happen all the time in this time of the year. And just in summer, too. Um, So I'm sure flights are like constantly getting canceled at that airport. By 10 a.m., every flight had been canceled except for one. And um, that also included like Juliana and her mother Maria's flight. Their original flight was canceled. But by some luck, they were able to get tickets for Lonza Flight 508, which was the only one that was going to continue going out. And they actually felt really lucky to be those few that could make it home, make it home by Christmas. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Lanza Airlines was kind of like Spirit Airlines is considered today. Like it was, it's not a good airline to fly. However, it's like a hundred times worse. Spirit, it's just kind of cramped and stuff. But Lanza had a really bad reputation for like crashing and then like, Ugh. yeah, shitty mechanics. Like it said that their mechan- the Lanza mechanics... They were previously motorcycle mechanics, like they hadn't worked on planes before. Same difference. <laughs> right? There was even like a crash um, and they continued using the same pilots even though it was a pilot error. Okay. Yeah, so it's all bad. Um, so when Maria called Hans at the airport to let him know the itinerary change, he actually urged them, like kind of begged them not to board the flight because their reputation was so horrible. Oh, wow. Yeah, and um, just a little flash forward once... Once uh, Hans heard about the crash, he didn't think, he thought that they were still going to be coming home that day because they didn't think, he didn't think that 
um, they would disobey him like that, that they would board the flight still, even though he warned them not to. So he was in disbelief that they were on that flight. You know, he thought they... They didn't end up telling him, now we're going to do it. (laughs) I guess not. Or he just didn't believe them. Yeah. So to me, it's the craziest thought that those who felt so lucky, even to be getting the flights to make it home on Christmas, were the ones who ended up with the worst luck ever. And then vice versa to the people who were stuck at the airport who thought their flights had been canceled and that they were going to miss Christmas, they were ultimately the lucky ones. I thought that was so strange to think about. Yikes. Yeah. So the plane was boarded with a total of 91 passengers. Juliana and her mother were seated at row 19F, the second to last row of the plane. Juliana had the window seat, her mother sat in the middle, and a businessman who Juliana recalls fell asleep before takeoff sat in the aisle seat. The first 20 minutes of the flight were smooth sailing, and it wasn't until the plane flew directly into a dark storm cloud that things became disastrous. I'm sure. Yeah. (laughs) Disastrous. Right in a storm cloud. Yeah. And not to mention it was so dense that Juliana, who was at the window seat, could only see pitch black through the window. Damn. And it was 11 in the morning. 11 or 12. (gasps) Yeah. Where were they flying again? Uh, They were in Peru. Going to where, though? Um, They're yeah, there was a certain airport name I forgot. Um, it's not directly in Panguana, but it's like oh, yes. uh, in the yes, yeah yes. Panguana is like the outskirts of it. Yeah, the vicinity because it. I'm sure they'd have to drive a little bit to get there. Okay. So it was pitch black, and that is until there started to be lightning bolts, which obviously would light up the sky for a second, which is fucking terrifying. At this point, the plane was experiencing severe turbulence so bad that all of the overhead bins ended up opening and a bunch of luggage and even like a bunch of Christmas presents. She was even describing it as like Christmas cakes, candies. They're flying all across the plane. Oh my god! Like literally hitting passengers. Like cake in the face. Yeah. But it was scary though. Like she was describing it as it was like moving up and down, like the worst turbulence ever. And yeah, by this point, um, passengers had begun to scream. Um, some were weeping and a lot of them were praying. Fuck. Yeah. Um, her mother and her sat speechless in their seats. They were just holding each other's hands tightly, not even able to really make out words. Um, they watched as a bolt of lightning struck the outer engine, literally from Juliana's seat. Oh, it was like right next God. to it. And you could, she could see it. And uh, her mom calmly said, so ominous, that is the end. It's all over. And those would actually be the last words that Juliana heard her mother say. Oh. So... And this is where um, I'm just going to be reading an excerpt from a BBC article that was done in 2012 uh, from Julia's words. And also, a side note, I hope this doesn't get copyrighted. I'm not too familiar on what or like how you can get copyrighted, but I am giving the source and we will include a link in our description if you guys want to read the full article. That would be fucked if the last episode you're in we got like sued for what you said. <laughs> I go out the bay. I'm no longer affiliated with them. (laughs) (laughs) No, you wouldn't get sued. It would just get taken down. (laughs) So, it's yeah. And also, this is gonna be like the next several minutes me reading because Loki. Oh, it's a long excerpt. It's pretty much the rest of the story. Oh, (laughs) so it's her experience from her own words. Yes. Okay. Yeah, I thought it was a lot better, and I know I could have done it myself. I just felt like the way she told it was. really gave the perception of being in her shoes and on top of that i was studying for my history test that i have to do today so i got like a little half-assed i'm sorry i know this describes my experience on the podcast very well i was gonna say i tried real fucking hard i tried real fucking hard (laughs) 
talks for 10 minutes so now i'm gonna read an article yeah several pages long. i know just, <laughs> just like the last the last one we recorded i was just reading reddit stories this is literally a fitting end to your yeah it's here. a it's a downward spiral it's kind of just like throwing back to the first episode oh Never the stairs and once. yeah you're like just look up on youtube just yeah do it yeah it's funny how that went in a full circle huh yeah <laughs> all right so i'll begin I don't know why I said it though. I thought you were reading a quote. I'll begin. I'm I like, know. That's weird. <laughs> okay, and just a heads up, um, I'm going to be dropping in some commentary every now and then. Um, I'll let you know though. But as the quote goes, the plane jumped down and went into a nosedive. It was pitch black and people were screaming. Then the deep roaring of the engine filled my heads completely. I don't know why I said heads. I meant head. <laughs> so she said the quote. No, she said, <laughs> she, she said head. She said head, I just can't read. No, I was joking. You guys. No, she, she was thinking of her head and your head. Heads. <laughs> Suddenly the noise stopped and I was outside the plane. I was in a free fall. Strapped to my seat, bench and hanging head over heels. The whispering of the wind was the only sound I could hear. I felt completely alone. I could see the canopy of the jungle spinning towards me. Then I lost consciousness and remembered nothing of the impact. Later, I learned that the plane had broken into pieces about two miles above the ground. Oh, fuck. Yeah, and I just wanted to do a side note here on that. Um, so two said, miles is a lot. Yeah, no, <laughs> but also I want to I wanna tell you, like, she was, the plane had broken into pieces, and she doesn't remember exactly how that happened. I mean, I'm sure it's like a sensory overload at the time, but pretty much she was free-falling from two miles above, and her entire row was still intact, but... Um, her mother and then the businessman that was in the aisle seat were not in the seats anymore. They weren't buckled. They weren't there. And oh, they weren't buckled whenever it started going down? Well, I don't know if they well, were buckled. Probably. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to assume they weren't buckled, <sighs> but she was, and she was, um, she ended up going unconscious, actually, because because of the altitude change, obviously, um, fuck, and yeah, probably because of the trauma of that happening, and then also because uh, her seatbelt was so tight on her stomach because she was literally facing down. Like, can you imagine that? And she was spinning. Oh, no. Spinning. Yeah. So, um, yes, she fucking passed out. As I would, too, I'm sure. Shit. I wouldn't want to be fucking conscious for that shit. That's for damn sure. So, I'll continue. I woke the next day and looked up into the canopy. The first thought I had was, I survived an air crash. I shouted out to my mother, but I only heard the sounds of the jungle. I was completely alone. I had broken my collarbone and had some deep cuts on my legs, but my injuries weren't very serious. I realized later that I had ruptured a ligament in my knee, but I could walk. Before the crash, I had spent a year and a half with my parents on their research station only 30 miles away. I learned a lot about life in the rainforest, that it wasn't too dangerous. It's not the green hell the world always thinks it. I could hear the planes overhead searching for the wreck, but it was a very dense forest and I couldn't see them. And then side note on that, like, can you imagine the hopelessness you would feel as you heard... I guess for for the first three days, she heard, like, helicopters flying up ahead trying to find mm-hmm. the crash. Yeah. But, obviously, she wasn't rescued. Because we'll post a picture on the Instagram, like I said, but you guys really have to, like, see how it looks to really understand that, bro, it took days. It took weeks, actually, I think, for them to find the plane crash. Oh and then God. even, um, I'll talk about it later a little bit, but... I think 20 years later they do a doc someone does a documentary on her and they actually go back to the the crash landing and it takes them four tries to even find it jeez yeah four different days they tried to find it because it's so dense all right 
I was wearing a very short sleeveless mini dress and white sandals. I had lost one shoe, but I kept the other because I am very short-sighted and had lost my glasses. So I used that shoe to test the ground ahead of me as I walked. Snakes are camouflaged there and they look like dry leaves. I was lucky I didn't meet them or maybe I just didn't see them. I found a small creek and walked into the water because I knew it was safer. And I mean, I guess I would trust her word. I'm not exactly sure how it's safer. Maybe there's like <laughs> less, less snakes. Less snakes. Uh, yeah, I guess that's true. Um, Especially if she can't see anything. True. But um, I don't think she's going to mention it in this quote, but I learned that the river that she ends up pretty much trailing along to eventually find help, there's poisonous stingrays in it at the bottom. Um, there's piranhas, and then there's crocodiles or alligators, one or the other. Um, she's not concerned about the crocodiles or alligators because I guess she knows enough about them and she knows, like, how to make herself look less appealing. I'm not sure how that works. Um, she wasn't concerned with piranhas either because I guess they don't really attack people when it's flowing water. They only do in still water. Her only concern was the stingrays. So she actually, like, the entire time she was going down the waterbed, or the, the I guess the river, um, she had a big stick and she was, like, poking at the ground. Doing the stingray shuffle. Yeah, doing the stingray shuffle. <laughs> at the crash site, I f had found a bag of sweets. When I had finished them, I had nothing more to eat, and I was very afraid of starving. It was very hot and very wet, and it rained several times a day. But it was cold in the night, and to be alone in that mini dress was very difficult. I was thinking that's, like, the worst outfit mm -hmm. to be left in. A mini yeah. dress, one sandal, no glasses. Dude, and I know, poor thing. Brutal. With all the bugs out there, too. Oh, no. Yeah. And I, this was also at the time, this was in the 70s, where it was very common that you would dress normally or nicely for the airport. Obviously now, like, wearing sweats and sandals is a thing, or, like, <laughs> slippers, but, yeah. So Dressing they were dressed nice. Super comfy. Uh-huh. I didn't know that was a thing where they used to not dress comfy. No, not in the 70s. That's weird. So on the fourth day, I heard the noise of landing king vulture, which I recognized from my time at my parents' reserve. I was afraid because I knew they only land when there is a lot of carrion, and I knew it was bodies from the crash. Oh. So, yeah, so essentially she's saying that um, she was familiar with this bird called the king vulture, which are fucking, what's the word? Oh, they're scavengers. They're scavengers, and they usually go for, like, roadkill or something like that. But she heard a lot of them landing, and she realized that this was because there was bodies nearby. Fuck. Which is fucking awful. When I turned a corner in the creek, I found a bench with three passengers rammed headfirst into the earth. <gasps> oh yeah. my god. Yeah. I was paralyzed by panic. It was the first time I had seen a dead body. I thought my mother could be one of them, but when I touched the corpse with this, corpses with a stick, I saw that the woman's toenails were painted. My mother never polished her nails. And her mom wouldn't be on another bench anyway. Yeah. But I'm sure she wasn't thinking about that She wasn't, <laughs> no. She's, she even later, doesn't say it here, but she said before, too, that she knew logically it wasn't possible, but it was the first body she encountered, and she just wanted to be sure. Mm -hmm. So, Juliana, um, I kind of have a misquote here. I have, like, a little fuck-up in my Google Docs, but she felt very ashamed that she was relieved that the woman with the toenails painted wasn't her mother. Like, she felt glad it wasn't her mother, but she felt ashamed that um she was so happy that yeah that some another woman had perished at that fate so by the 10th day i couldn't stand properly and i drifted along the edge of a large river that i had found i felt so lonely like i was in a parallel universe far away from any human being 
I thought I was hallucinating when I saw a really large boat. When I went to touch it, she literally swam across the river, by the way. When I went to touch it and realized it was real, it was like an adrenaline shot. But then I saw there was a small path leading into the jungle where I found a hut with a palm leaf roof and an outboard motor and a liter of gasoline. I had a wound on my upper right arm. It was infested with maggots about one centimeter long. Oh, what the fuck? Bro, Whoa. so gross. She had maggots, like, yeah, stuffed yeah. into yep. her. Yeah, we mind. get it. <laughs> I remembered our dog had the same infection. My father had put kerosene on it, which is a type of gasoline. So I sucked the gasoline out and I put it in the wound. Oh my god. Yeah. The pain was intense and the maggots tried to get further into the wound. Oh, it literally backfired. I would not have tried anything knowing that there was a oh. boat there. I'd be like, oh, so, wait, maggots. So Juliana was, her, her biggest fear, she wasn't scared of the crocodiles. She was hardly afraid of the stingrays. Her biggest fear was dying of blood poisoning because she oh. knew she knew she got blood poisoning that obviously it would severely weaken her and then it would probably lead to her death. Yes. So she knew that, that was like the number one thing she had to focus on. Oh my god. Mm -hmm. The pain was intense as the maggots tried to get further into the wound. I pulled out about 30 maggots and was very proud of myself. Oh. Yeah. And when she was describing this too, uh, I, I watched the documentary. She literally said that she had to use a stick to dig them out. Oh. Yeah. Like deep. Oh my god. Which is fucking, oh, awful. I decided to spend the night there. The next day, I heard the voices of several men outside. It was like hearing the voice of angels. When they saw me, they were alarmed and stopped talking. They thought I was some kind of water goddess, a figure from local lunches, <laughs> who is a hybrid of a water dolphin and a blonde, a white-skinned woman. Which, I don't know. That's kind funny. Of, kind of a weird little thing there. But I introduced myself in Spanish and explained what has happened. They treated my wounds and gave me something to eat, and the next day took me back to civilization. Also, side note here, they don't mention it, but, um, so the, pretty much the boat they were at, and then that, the little hut, like the little house she had found, um, it got used once a month. Oh, so she was, she really lucked out. She, yeah, she really lucked out that they had come the next day. Damn. Which, I mean, after all the bad luck she already endured, it was... Can you imagine if she wouldn't have made it? That would have been just so fucking awful. I wonder if she would have tried to just drive the boat herself. Now that you say that, uh, she had considered doing that, but she she also considered herself a mild-mannered woman and that she wouldn't steal something. That's hilarious. <laughs> Which I thought was so cute, a little 17-year-old. <laughs> so in regards to like the civilization they took her back to, they got on the boat and I think it took like seven to eight hours to get back to civilization. She was way the fuck out there. But when she got into the, the little village or the town, uh, a lot of people were scared of her because her eyes were completely bloodshot. She had popped nearly all the vessels in her eyes um, from, from yeah, from, from the free fall, yeah, from the altitude change. And uh, they were super puffy and she just looked like a wreck. So, Jesus. Yeah, they literally thought she was like, some people thought she was like a demon, <laughs> which is awful. So I'm like thinking, I was like, do you think the guys really thought she was a water goddess? Or do you think they were thinking something else? They're like, oh my god, we thought you were a goddess, you're so pretty. And they're like, oh, did you see her eyes? <laughs> <laughs> Fucking awful. So, the day after my rescue, I saw my father. He could barely talk, and in the first moment, we just held each other. Just so sad. He so thought she was dead for 11 days. Yeah, both of them. Oof. Both the mom and him. Yikes. Yeah. They thought that there was no survivors at this point. Of course. For the next few days, he frantically searched for news of my mother. And then on January 12th, they found her body. 
Later I found, this is awful, this is really awful this part. Later I found out she had also survived the crash but was badly injured and she couldn't move. I was wondering. She died several days later. I dread to think of what her last days were like. I was saying there's probably several survivors. Yeah, it's actually believed that there were 14 others who survived the initial crash <sighs> but later died in the rainforest, either succumbing to the elements or their injuries. Jesus Christ. Yeah, and the awful thing about it too is, um, it's believed that her mother died about two or three days after Juliana was rescued. Oh my which, god. Can you imagine like living with the guilt? That's so fucking hard to imagine. And another crazy thing is um, when she had first landed and she decided she needed, after she stopped looking for mom because she realized she needed to try to survive, um, the way she took ended up being like the way longer way. If she would have went the opposite direction, she would have probably found civilization in a day or two. Oh my god. Yeah. I thought that was so fucking crazy though that even that many people survived the initial crash. I figured if one person survived, that was me. My next question was, did anyone else survive? She was the only one. Just so sad. Whew. I yeah, so, almost just want to die. Um, yeah, so also too, the crash site, like once they did find it, once she was able to kind of help lead the officials back and then Actually, I don't think she went back. I think maybe she described it. She didn't go back till 20 years later. Once they did find it, they realized that it was like a two or three mile span of like debris and like bodies and like belongings. Ugh. And actually even to this, um, at least in the documentary, so 20 years later, there was still like a bunch of like debris out there. There's literally in the documentary, she goes back for the first time and there's like, an, they find an emergency exit. They find, just really sad, but they find like a little coin purse she thinks belongs to a, belonged to a little child. Ugh. Um, they find, like, the exterior metal frame of a, like, a suitcase. So much stuff. It's crazy. That's but, so yeah, scary. that just really shows, like, how dense it is that they haven't even cleared it out. Like, there's pieces of the plane everywhere. Jesus. Yeah. Juliana believes that she survived the initial crash by three possibilities, but most likely it was a combination of all three of them. The first was that the thunderstorm updraft slowed the speed in which she fell. So, pretty much, like, in thunderstorms, it, I think, I believe it's, like, warm air rising, so she thinks that that slowed the initial speed. Mm -hmm. By how much, I'm not sure. It still seems like you'd be going pretty fast. Okay. The second was that the outer seats of the row, which remained attached to her as part of the row three, functioned as a parachute and slowed her fall as she spun to the earth. Oh. So, yeah, so kind of what I imagine here is imagine, like, uh, you have a boomerang, and you just drop it to the floor how fast it goes but then imagine if you throw it out a distance and then you watch it spin down mm -hmm. or like even like those little boomerang looking leaves they spin down it goes it slows it down actually quite a bit so just so so you guys can envision that a little better better okay. because i feel like the the wording i used on that wasn't great it was interesting yeah <laughs> so the last possibility is that the thick overhang of vines in that specific area that juliana fell is what slowed it down the most. That's like, what I was imagining. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so obviously there's a lot of like vines and really fluffy trees that could slow it down. But her particular spot, like that tiny little area she landed in, like it had like an unusually large amount of overhang of vines. So yeah, I, I was mean, thinking especially. Oh, I'm sorry, Brandy. Oh, I was just gonna say. I guess it depends on how they land too, because there was the other people that landed like face first. Yeah. Oh, fuck. Well, yeah. Forgot about that part. So how, how they landed kind of, um, she didn't land like head first, but she landed with her face kind of like towards the ground, but she was still buckled in, remember? Yes. So. So it held her in place. Yeah, so it held her in place like that. 
Can you imagine the fucking bruise she must have had right, right on her stomach, too? Um, and also, to mention that, too, um, there were... I can't remember the first one, but she recalled having... As she was unconscious, she recalled having two dreams. And the second dream was she was covered in dirt and mud, and she remembered thinking in her dream, well, this is stupid. I can just go walk over to the bathroom and rinse it off. And then right as she walked to the bathroom, she that's when she actually first came out of her unconsciousness. And this was actually, she was unconscious from, so she probably fell and landed around noon that day. She was unconscious till the next morning. Wow. Yeah, but sometime during that, she was able, probably like right away, she unbuckled her seat. And then that's when she woke up and found herself pretty much using the seats up above her as like a shelter, covering her from um, the rain that was happening, and then just covered in mud. Jeez. Yes, she was unconscious for a while. And actually, when she was first trying to get, First trying to like even stand up, it took her several hours. She kept like drifting in and out of consciousness. And then even when she was finally feeling a little better, every time she'd stand up, her head was pounding so bad from, I mean, she probably fucking got a concussion, you know? I was gonna say the worst headache ever. Yeah, for real. <laughs> so after the crash, she ended up moving to Germany and studied biology from the University of Kiel. She returned to Peru to complete her thesis, Ecological Study of a bat colony in tropical rainforests of Peru in 1987. In 1998, a documentary called Wings of Hope showed Juliana's first return to the crash site. She described it as a sort of therapy. The film was directed by Werner Herzog, good name, who on Christmas Eve 1971 had tickets for Juliana's original flight, but a last minute change of itinerary spared him of the crash. Oh. So, Remember how Juliana, Juliana and her mom's flight got canceled um, and they were able to book tickets on the next flight, the only flight that actually went out that day? He wasn't able to get... So he was on that original flight she had that was canceled and he wasn't able to get on the next flight. Probably considered himself unlucky. At the time, yeah. He considered himself unlucky and <sighs> then, you know, obviously by later that day when everyone realized it crashed, he considered himself extremely lucky. That's fucking crazy. Yeah. In 2011, she released her book, I fell from the sky recounting her miraculous and horrifying survival story. And also, this just reminds me, too, of um, in regards to, like, how the passengers whose flight was canceled, they just felt so unlucky, and then the people who got the plane felt so lucky. It just always reminds me, like, if you think about stories where people, like, think, oh, what if I would have done this? How would my life have been? Or people that they fucking slept in, and then they didn't board a plane, like... The weird twist of fate. Small decisions can really change it's the butterfly effect. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for thanks for listening to that, guys. And I'm sorry that I stuttered and mispronounced a lot of word that really depicts my time on the podcast. Pretty accurate. She was just getting really emotional about her last episode. Yeah, I was just stuttering all over the place. But anyway, my excuse. Oh, because you're gonna miss Leah so much. Yeah, you've been missing me from the beginning. You knew this would happen. You knew. So, I'm going to be talking about the Tom Luang Cave Rescue. Uh, I feel like a lot of people have probably already heard this story because it only happened, like, in 2018, but I still think about it often, and, like, as soon as we started the podcast, I, like, wrote down. I was like, do a cave episode and do this cave. So, yeah, I just think it's a crazy story, and I learned some new stuff while researching. So, on June 23rd, 2018, a Saturday, 12 boys from a junior soccer team called the Wild Boars and their assistant coach went missing in northern Thailand. The boys are between the ages of 11 and 16, and the assistant coach was 25. They had just finished practice and had decided to go sightsee and explore the nearby Tom Luang Caves for an hour. 
These caves are under a mountain range called... I didn't look up how to say anything except for the caves. Oh, no. Uh, Doi Nang Non, which is on the border between Thailand and Myanmar. Probably. You killed it, bro. Yeah. It's 6.2 miles long and made of limestone with winding tunnels and narrow passages within. Outside of the cave is a sign posted warning of flooding in the rainy season, July through November. But as it was still June, I could see why they weren't too bothered and maybe just didn't even fucking notice it at all. Oh, so like the month before? Yeah, like the week before. Yeah, but... That seems like some shit I do. I'd be like, oh, I still have a week. Yeah, <laughs> but in. besides that, that's funny you mention this because there's this trail in San Diego called the Ho Ming Trail. I think that's what it's called. Ho Chi Ming Trail. And it's in uh, La Jolla near Black's Beach. And it's actually, so it's like a trail if you search it on all trails. Um, but there's always signs about like erosion and like caution, like so many posted. And this trail, I was reading the reviews, like it's so dangerous. Like people were commenting that they almost died because there's a, the erosion has gone so bad and people are still fucking doing this. Um, it's gone so bad that there's a point where it's like hang on the cliff ledge. And uh, like there's a ravine 15 feet below. And they're like, yeah. it's worth it. <laughs> but my, my point in mentioning that is just because there's science doesn't mean pe- doesn't mean people are going to listen to it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Especially at that age, teenage boys. Yeah. And yeah. even the assistant coach, who was only 25. Like, yeah, that's not that old. That's, that's right up their alley of, like, considered exploring, you know? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, as you could tell from the last sentence, you can probably see where this story is going. Mm-hmm. But they're walking through the tunnels exploring when they realized that pools of water had begun to form around them and that their way out was now completely flooded. Oh, fucking fuck. That's so scary. That is a... <laughs> first of all, drowning is a fear of mine. Second of all, going in caves is a fear of mine. <laughs> Getting trapped I in I feel like it'd be cool to go in a cave, but I wouldn't want to get stuck in a cave, I must say. No, me neither. I personally wouldn't. To each their own. Uh, so when the assistant coach, I didn't look up the names, you guys, Ekapol Chantawang, who went by Ake, you know, it might be Ake, Ake, I'll call him Ake. <laughs> when he realized that they were lost and had no way out, they were able to walk until they found a dry, sandy area near a water source. The group decided to sleep there that night, and they weren't even that scared because they figured in the morning the raid would let up and people would come looking for them. That's exactly what my thought process would be, too. I feel like I'd be freaking out, honestly. And I couldn't see if they had, like, flashlights or not. Um, if they did, I'm sure the batteries didn't last. <laughs> yeah, but also, if, like, if it's their captain trying to reassure them, oh, no, it's fine, we'll wait till morning, like, he probably made them feel like, oh, this is no big oh, deal. Oh, yes, yeah. And then they believed him, but deep down, he's probably freaking the fuck out. Oh, I'm sure. Feeling responsible <laughs> for all those kids, too. So, meanwhile, the head coach... You already know what I'm going to say. I didn't look his name. No, that was the assistant coach. Oh, my bad. Uh, the head coach, Noparat Kondong, he had checked his phone around 7 p.m. that same day and saw about 20 missed calls from parents of the boys who hadn't seen their sons in hours. He called Ake but wasn't able to reach him before trying to call all the boys on the team. He finally looked out when he tried calling a 13-year-old and he happened to pick up. He happened to be picked up right after practice. So, from him, he learned that the other boys and Ake had planned to go explore the cave system. So, what? it's kind of what you said earlier. He just happened to be picked up, and now he wasn't fucking uh, abandoned in a cave. Yeah, <laughs> the fate. Um, I was but gonna... imagine if he was, they wouldn't have known where they were. 
Oh my God, Wait, Brandy. Michelle, <laughs> yeah. I, have a, I have a question too then for you, just to clarify. So you're saying that the assistant coach and then some of the boys went to the caves and then yes. then the coach didn't go and then a couple of the other boys didn't go. Maybe just one of the other boys because I only saw it one of them mentioned. Whoa, so like Brandy said, that's it, crazy. no one might have known where they'd gone. So maybe it was perfect that he was the only one that didn't go. Yes. Whoa, mind blown. So the head coach went himself to the caves and saw all of their bikes and bags sitting outside abandoned, but not the boys himself. He could see that there was water seeping out of the pathway and immediately called the authorities. Why not fucking scared that he's seeing all their abandoned bikes and then just seeing water coming out? Ugh. So within two days, a British cave diver and a team of Thai Navy SEALs had arrived and began to search the caves. The water was so murky that one of the Navy SEALs said that even with a flashlight on, they had no idea where they were going underwater. The search had to be stopped every once in a while due to the cave entrance being flooded because of all the rain and this caused poor visibility and strong currents. On June 27th, three more British cave divers arrived with some specialist equipment along with some open water divers. On the 28th, teams from the US Air Forces arrived to help. And on the 29th, a group of Australian specialist response group divers showed up too. Following not long after this was a team of Chinese divers from the Beijing Peaceland Foundation. Wow, so so many different nations came together. Yeah, <laughs> basically. So, meanwhile in the cave, the boys and the assistant coach had been drinking water from the walls. They were trying to, this is kind of sad, they were trying to dig their own way out of the cave, so they were using rock fragments, and by the time that they were rescued, they'd actually dug a hole that was five meters deep, which is about 16.4 feet. Wow. Oh, shit. Yeah. Um, I saw some conflicting articles, but I believe they had some food with them that they split while the assistant coach, like, refused to eat any so that the boys could have more. Aww. Since it was, of course, super dark and they had no idea how long they'd been in there, Ake also taught them how to meditate. He'd previously been a Buddhist monk before coaching and wanted to help the boys, like, handle the stress in a good Aww. way. Oh, wow. So, so seems like such a No, nice he's really guy. cool. <laughs> so... While the world was basically sending out the best divers they had to come and help these boys and their coach, police had, <laughs> police had been using sniffer dogs around the caves to try and find alternate shafts leading into the cave. They tried to use drones and robots as well, but with no luck. At some point, the search had to be stalled again due to weather and how it was affecting the water, but divers were able to resume their search on July 2nd. So it's like kind of confusing. Like I said before, they kept stopping and going, and then randomly they'd mention specific dates, so I don't know how long they were actually searching so for. Was it raining or like what was the weather situation like at the time? It was like monsoon monsoon season, oh, so like insane heavy rain. <laughs> yes, that okay. caused some flooding. Um, at around 10 p.m. that night on July 2nd, British divers Richard Stanton and John Volenthen found the boys and the coach safe on a narrow rock shelf. John had been placing guidelines around the cave to help others navigate, but he ran out of line. He went to the surface of the water and said he could smell the missing group before even seeing or hearing them. And they were two and a half miles away from the cave entrance. Okay, so question about this. So, I'm just trying to imagine, like, what it's like entering the cave. Like, what, can you kind of describe, like, if you went to the entrance of the cave, like, what it'd be like? You're saying people had to, like, swim underwater? Yeah, I think, like, the entrance was a body of water. So, it, it's kind of like a... It was just straight water. There was no path no more. Oh, and then eventually they go deeper in the cave and they're on higher ground? Yeah, it's like, well, it's like a lot. Like, they had to walk at parts, they had to swim at parts. Some parts were super narrow. I'm going to post a picture of the map, but, like, one part, it was too narrow for the diver to even wear an oxygen tank. I, I do get more into detail about it soon, but... 
Yeah. It, yeah, it was like on and off water land, water land, water land. Can I look at that while you talk? Yes. You may. I like the visual. Okay. So the group at this point hadn't even been sure how long they're in the cave and asked for the date. It had been nine days. There's a video online of the rescuers speaking to the boys when they found them, telling them how more people were coming, but they couldn't get them out just yet. Can you imagine? You're like, please don't leave me. I know, right? <laughs> Take me. <laughs> so the next day, the group of boys was joined by three Navy SEALs, including one who was a Thai Army doctor. And this doctor actually ended up staying with them until they were rescued. Oh, that's cool. Good. So they brought them food and looked them over to make sure none of them had serious injuries or illnesses. And thankfully, they all seemed pretty well off. With the help of a British diver's waterproof notepad, the boys and the coach were all able to send messages of reassurance to their family outside. So waterproof notepads are fucking sick. That's crazy. Yeah. I don't know how they work. So now came a possibly even harder challenge. How the fuck were they going to get them out of this cave? Uh, So I know know Leah's looking at the picture right now like, oh my God. Yeah. (laughs) It was intense. They're just literally deep within a fucking mountain in a cave. Two and a half miles into a cave, dude. Oh. So, outside of the cave, a logistics camp was set up. They had volunteers, journalists, rescue workers, Thai Navy SEALs, other military personnel, and even the group's family members had their own area set up that they could, like, get more privacy while waiting for news. Most still the international cool. people there, like, British people. And yeah, every, basically SEALs. fucking everyone. Wow. So, like I said, the boys were two and a half miles in the cave, and they were either 2,600 to 3,300 below feet below the mountain above them so it wouldn't be easy finding a way to get them out remember it took nine days for these professional divers to even reach them but a majority of these kids were 14 and under and they'd been stuck in a cave for days so not exactly in their prime physical condition yeah. at this point point. and then on top of that like they have no experience diving yeah <laughs> i there's some reports that like some of these kids didn't know how to swim but i don't know if those are true or not because be. initially well initially reports were even saying like they had gone into the cave to celebrate this one kid's birthday and they brought a bunch of food with them and they got out the cave and they're like, no, that's not true. But one of them, he was 16. The next day he was turning 17. So he had to spend his 17th birthday trapped oh, in a cave. Shit. What the fuck? That actually yeah, weirdly... Like, with 17th birthday. I was going to say, it reminded me of your story. Both these people on their 16th birthday is having no idea... Or 17th birthday is having no idea what the fuck was going to happen. And your yeah. person got kidnapped. We're referencing our episode... Escaping Kidnappers and Whack-A-Mole. Oh, I was talking about the... I thought you were talking about this one, too. Yeah, I was this like, one, too. Wait, she was 17. Oh, whoa. I was referencing mine. <laughs> Damn. We're, you guys, we have a lot of stories like this. Damn, and that's funny, Okay, though. so I was referencing Escaping Kidnappers. Leah was referencing her story from 20 minutes ago. Yeah. <laughs> that's what? the one I thought of. Yeah. Oh, but yeah, in Leah's kidnapping story, that 17, one girl was yeah. 16 oh. turning 17 the next day. That's right. Oh, yeah. That's right. Amanda Berry. These people are having fucking hard 17th years, everyone. Yeah. I don't even remember mine. <laughs> Same dude. At least you were stuck in I moved to San Diego. Diego. Yeah. No, I just, I, I have, I'm Dory. <laughs> I have short term hey, memory loss. Short term? Short term. <laughs> Remembery loss. Remembery. <laughs> So, according to what I read online, in order to get to the area where the boys were, it took even experienced divers about six hours of like journeying through this area this is because of several factors like they had to swim against the current some parts were totally flooded so they had no choice but to dive and these areas had no visibility some parts of the dive were super super small the smallest was only 15 inches by 28 inches oh my anxiety yeah no i feel claustrophobic even just fucking reading that and especially you're underwater and you can't see anything 
Bro, 15 inches, that's literally barely over two a foot. feet and an inch, yeah. And then barely over two feet. That's, no. Mm-mm. It must have been some skinny-ass divers. <laughs> right? Skinny queens. I think I was I could 15 never. inches when I was born. When you were born? Yeah. Shut up. You're like, that's the exact size I was as a newborn. No. <laughs> the length was. Millions, maybe. <laughs> length and width, exactly the size of this fat cavern. That's how I was. <laughs> so, <laughs> there were many ideas going around on how to rescue the group. Even, like, Elon Musk, like, oh, the dude from this. Tesla, uh, he got involved. So, mm-hmm. he and engineers from his companies were trying to design and build basically a kid-sized submarine to evacuate the boys. Mm-hmm. And this was just, like, if the other rescue fails, rescue plans failed. So, this ended up being rejected as a backup plan as somebody deemed it, like, impractical. Later on, one of the divers involved in the actual rescue went on to talk about Musk's plan and say it was just a PR stunt and to, quote, stick it where it hurts. <laughs> <laughs> so for some reason, this really pissed off Elon Musk and led him tweeting out a series of tweets against him, like saying, like, I didn't even, like, see you in the video, blah, blah, blah. You weren't even that important. And there was one tweet where he referred to the rescue diver as, quote, pedo guy. He doubled down on this when someone called him out saying, quote, bet you a signed dollar it's true. Why would he call him a pedophile? Was he a pedophile? Nope. Literally just because the diver called him out and he was like, well, why would you, somebody who's not, like, Thai, be living in Thailand unless you were a pedophile? Oh, and helping little boys. Because maybe he's just a good person. I know. And this happened exactly a week after Elon Musk did an interview saying how he was going to calm down on Twitter and attack people less. Like, you're a fucking scumbag. So, this actually led to a lawsuit, but it was found not to defame the diver, and Musk had apologized and deleted the tweet not too long after posting. One of the many, many, many reasons I do not not like Elon Musk. Literally, this guy, all he said was like, your idea said, because, like, it was a kid-sized submarine. How is it going to get around that tiny little gap I just told you about? Yeah. Yeah. And you just call him a pedophile. That's funny. But Elon Elon Musk is literally like a robot, the way he talks and stuff, so I mean... He's weird. I don't like him. He's hella weird. The names names are fucking kids. Bro, he's he's gonna hear our podcast and start tweeting about us, calling us pedos. I know. How about... If you listen to our podcast, Elon Musk, how about give away your fucking money and actually help the world instead of just hoarding billions? Yeah, give me a Tesla. Any billionaire listening to this. (laughs) Imagine billionaires listening to our podcast. Then I'd be like, go distribute your wealth, bitches. (laughs) They have a king for, like, like, fucking fresh true crime podcasts. Yeah, that's weird. (laughs) (laughs) But the two other main ideas they had were... The first one, wait until after monsoon season while supplying the group with food and water. Oh. Remember, it was about five months away. Oh, yeah, because it wasn't even supposed to start yet, right? Yeah, it, like, started, started the like, next month. Yeah, like, a week into this. Mm-hmm. So, the second option was to teach the boys basic diving skills to aid in their escape. This was the best option, but at the same time, like, super fucking dangerous. Seems so, risky. Yeah. So, a bunch of the workers, like, were able to build a fake scenario of tight passages in a nearby pool using chairs and stuff, and they got local boys to practice and see how ideal this idea was. But after testing it, they changed their mind, and instead, they decided to just have divers themselves, like, individually take the boys out of the cave. So, almost 100 divers were working in the caves in preparation for the rescue and preparing the boys. So on July 5th at 8.37 p.m., a former Thai Navy SEAL named Saman Kunan was diving on his way to deliver three air tanks. While returning, he lost consciousness underwater. CPR was attempted on him by his dive buddy and again when he was brought into another cave chamber, but it didn't work and he was officially pronounced dead at about 1 a.m. on July 6th. Oh my gosh, wait, so 
What happened? His his like tank exploded or what? No, oh, just I think he ran out of air or something. Oh. He lost consciousness. Yeah. Because he was resupplying, I think he was resupplying the boys with air, or maybe he was setting up tanks throughout for the divers in the future, and oh he gosh. just suddenly lost consciousness, and they weren't able to revive him. Dude, That's crazy. he was like a professional diver, huh? Yeah. Aww. So, okay. he, he was only 37 years old, and he'd actually left the Navy SEALs over a decade earlier and was working as security on airport, but he volunteered to help in the cave rescue when he heard about the trap boys. He was in the... He was a Navy SEAL. And Thai Navy SEAL. Okay. Yeah. Just wanted to clarify that. Saman was posthumously promoted to the rank of Lieutenant Commander, and his funeral was paid for and attended by the Thai royal family. Wow. Saman's death, of course, frightened a lot of people because if an experienced Navy SEAL diver died in this cave, how the hell are all these kids and their coach supposed to get out? Dude. That is yeah. so scary. Do, do you think they told, like... They probably they didn't, didn't tell, tell the boys. The kids. They didn't tell the boys till after. They don't want it to hurt them at all. I wonder. I think that they might have like even met him. Like he might have been one people who went up there at one point. Oh yeah. And they just didn't tell possible. them. Because of course, like if you tell them, they're gonna freak the fuck out and be like, "I'll just oh, live yeah. in this cave. It's yeah. fine. This is my new home." <laughs> I would agree. I think a lot of them would be like, "No, can you just bring us meals every day and yeah. we'll just stay here?" But I think it's more like just a super act, like freak accident. Uh, yeah, freak accident almost. Um, the public was reassured that the boys would be treated with care. Like, that's what officials told them. I think they referred to them as, like, an eggshell on a rock or something yeah. like that. Well, I think after he died, then it obviously concerned a lot of the families because how, how can they expect their kids to make it out alive? Yeah, I remember reading about this when it happened, and I was like, oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my God. Oh, yeah, before the kids ever got out? Yes. Yeah. It's really scary. Three days later, on July 8th, the rescue mission began. They would be taking one boy out and would have a diver with them at all times, as well as additional support. To keep them calm while on this journey, the boys were given anti-anxiety drugs, Xanax, oh, relax, yeah, and medicine and leave them unconscious for the journey, which I think is like ketamine or some shit. Is oh. that is ketamine too intense for this? I don't know. They gave them something to keep them unconscious. Yeah, and that also makes sense too, though, because if you're unconscious, you're more likely to... I mean... Just like your body's like, yeah, you're like, wait, like a little jelly bun. Yeah. Maneuver and stuff. Yeah, like the people people who get in car crashes, like passengers who are either like super drunk or like drivers who are super drunk or passengers who are sleeping, they usually don't end up with such serious injuries because they're so relaxed. They don't tense their muscles. Airplanes, too. That's why they're like, just try to keep calm because if you're tense, you're more likely to get injured because your body's already under stress. Yeah. And they were also given drugs to, like, keep their heartbeat low, I'm presuming, so they wouldn't run out of air. Mm -hmm. So the sedative was supposed to last for around 45 minutes to an hour, but the divers were trained to re-administer when needed. Thankfully, the divers had gotten the swim to the cave, like, down to only three hours, so it wouldn't be too long. Like, literally fucking half the time it initially took them. Yeah, but still only three hours. Oh, only three. Wow. I don't know if it's the entire swim was three hours, or if it was, like, the journey was three hours. I think, I think it was probably the journey because they probably have to stop and like yeah oh that's what i meant though like one way was three hours yes yeah i saw two different ways that the order of who was rescued first may have gone the first was that it was strictly on whoever volunteered first as they were all healthy the second was that the boys who lived the farthest would go out first since they didn't realize like how much attention their situation had gotten they assumed that they would have to like go and ride their bar their bikes really far and go and tell all the family like oh my god we're all okay they didn't realize there was literally thousands of people outside and had like nat or like international attention that's what a weird perception yeah so i don't know if it was that one but 
Because I feel like the the yeah. seals would have told them like, yeah. hey guys, everyone knows. But I, I thought that was funny enough to mention. Yeah, that is funny. It has to have been who volunteered first. They were like, all right, so you guys can go get your bikes, go ride home. No one knows where we are. Yeah. <laughs> can you imagine though, like being in that cave for so long, and then also as like a little like a teenage boy, they're like, we're gonna give you some like Xanax, and then we're gonna give you stuff as we fucking take your unconscious body through tunnels for three hours. I'd be like, don't tell me what we're doing, just give me the drugs. For real, And I will hope for the best. It made me so anxious. It made me anxious reading about it. Whenever I saw that the mission was underway, I was like, fuck. (laughs) So, now I'm going to describe the process they went through to get each person out. So, a diver would be holding on to the boy he was designated to save, and he would keep them on their side while holding on to either their back or their chest. Doing little, uh, movements for Liam Brandy to be like, Mm -hmm. ugh, ugh. You guys can't see. Why do I make noises like they could see? So, the boys had face masks on, of course, for oxygen, and the divers knew they were breathing, okay, thanks to exhaust bubbles that they could see and feel. When it came to small passages, like the one that's fucking a foot by two feet, the divers would put the boy first and push them from behind. Wow. How scary is that? That is so scary. All of this while swimming in low visibility. And the divers would actually keep their heads up higher than the boys. That way, in case there were rocks, only the rescuers would hit their heads. Aww. Which at the same time is scary, because if a rescuer hit their head and passed out, the boy would just be like... Yeah. Floating there. <laughs> right? Until they ran out of there. Oh my god. So, after a first short dive, there's then a dry section, which... While they were there, the boys were transported to a stretcher, and they had, like, their dive gear removed. They were assessed for injuries. They were readministrated drugs. Oh, they had set up a whole camp there. Oh, huh? yeah. They had tons of people involved in this. In, like, every section, they were, like, set up here, here, here. Get them more oxygen. Blah, blah, wow. blah. It reminds so, me of, like, a fucking marathon. Like, it's a, a little bit like a marathon. Um, but like the baton. Literally. literally. The children are the baton. <laughs> literally. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so they were assessed for injuries and anything, and they would then have their dive gear put back on and move on to the next dive. When the dive was finally done, the boys were passed on to hundreds of rescuers who were stationed to help them across the cave. So I think that this was about a mile out, probably, from the actual entrance, which I thought would just be, like, an Halfway, easy little right? stroll. It was not. Yeah. Oh, but it's, like, the harder half or what? I, this dive was probably the harder half, but I thought this was just, like, a flat surface, surface just walking. I'm like, oh, it's literally a cave. Of course, it's not that easy. Mm-hmm. So, they were passed on the stretcher from person to person. Like, oh, wow. like a daisy chain is what it's described as. They were all just like, here you go, your baton. So, literally a baton. <laughs> literally a baton. And I think that they were probably still unconscious during all of this. I mean, I'd fucking want to be, <laughs> I'd want to be unconscious till I was in the fucking hospital. <laughs> yeah, I agree. Um, and some parts of the cave, though not totally in water, were partially submerged. So at times the rescuers had to like carry them through muddy water and slippery rocks. Because wow. like mm. I, I really thought that it was just like a casual walk out with the stretcher, Ooh. and it was not. So this section of the journey took up to three to five hours at first, but was reduced to less than an hour later on. I, I was struggling to understand if that meant three to five hours to get the first boy out or three to five hours while practicing. Mm-hmm. But I think it might have been to get the first boy do out. You, do you think that when they initially started, like, the process of getting the boys out, they sent, like, one after another a bunch of the divers in, like, maybe, like, a group a group of them, and then one would start bringing a boy, and then another would follow, like, shortly after? Is that how you think it went? No, I, I actually say this right now. Okay, good. So, between every single rescue, the teams had to replace air tanks, gear, and other supplies, so it's an estimated that it would... 
So it's estimated that they could only rescue one person every 10 to 12, 20 hours. Whoa! That's the yeah. last day. Oh, yeah. But they Half see... a day? I thought it was... Whoa, no, crazy. but that was like their first estimate, but I think that they were able to get this number down significantly. But how significantly? Probably still a few hours. Oh, yeah, several hours still, because in the total on July 8th, four boys were rescued. Whoa. Followed by four more on July 9th. So what's 20, like every six hours? Wow. It wasn't like right after each other. It was like all this setting up for one single person. Remind me how many boys were in the cave? There was 12 boys and one coach. Oh my gosh. On July 10th, the remaining four boys in the coach exited the cave. If you were reading about this while I was going down, like I was doing that, it was fucking scary. Like, especially I didn't know as much about it as I do now. And every day at work, I would check my phone on break and be like, oh God, please tell me they all made it through. And then I was like so happy whenever they did. And I remember telling Robert about it too. And he's like, well, yeah, once the first person made it through, of course the rest were. And I was like, but that fucking tiny vesicle died in it. Like, yeah, it's, it's. Definitely possible somebody else could have died. For and, real. Yeah, there could have been so many things that went wrong with that. Oh, yes. <laughs> really? That's that's so crazy. It is. So, in total, the boys who had been stuck in the cave the longest were in there for 17 days. Whoa! Over two weeks. The group was immediately taken to the hospital where they were weighed, and it was determined that, on average, they lost four and a half pounds each during their ordeal. Which I didn't think was too, too much. But they were able to get more food while they were in there. Did you say they had food with them when they went into the case? I spread conflicting reports. Mm -hmm. I think that they at least had a little bit of food and that um, Ake, like, decided not to eat any to help them out. Right. Yeah, they must have had some, too, because with that long of time, especially for, like, teenage boys, I feel like teenage boys lose weight so fast. Mm -hmm. They could eat whatever. So I think they would have lost more weight. Well, they were found after, like, a week. They were found after, like, a week. And I think that they were giving them more, like, calorie-dense, like, protein stuff and vitamin-filled. That's right. I forgot. I forgot that they were transferring this. Yeah, so they had a week to gain back some weight. So I'm sure it was more initially. So for a week, they were all then quarantined in case they were at risk of infections. Family members at first could only look at them through windows, but they were eventually allowed to take, like, a medical test and go on a visit with a medical gown, face mask, and hair cap, as long as their tests were negative. I don't know exactly what they were testing them for. It sounds like coronavirus. I know. They didn't even know. This is where it started. (laughs) So because they'd been stuck in the dark for so long, the boys had to wear sunglasses at all time because they weren't adjusted to daylight. Can you imagine that would burn your eyes? That was me after I got LASIK and I would wear my glasses or my sunglasses inside at work because they hurt. So what, on the, for the boys who got rescued during the daytime, they must have like transferred them into something dark right away. Oh yeah. I mean, or they were probably still unconscious off. and yeah. they were like, put them in the cot. <laughs> so while some people in media question whether the coach would face criminal charges, like for negligence, taking the boys in the caves, thankfully that did not happen. The families of the boys were even, like, thankful for him, keeping... They believe that he kept their sons brave and calm and saying how they didn't know how they would have survived without Ake there. Yeah. So, like, I was saying, he was, like, teaching them how to meditate and stuff. And I like, agree. calm. And if it was just the boys, like, they might have left the safe area that they were at and, like, mm-hmm. tried to find a way out. And drowned. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. Yeah, I think definitely he, he yeah. probably played a huge role in them surviving. Oh, yes. First of all, teenage boys don't make good decisions as it is. <laughs> yeah, and teaching them to, like, meditate and then relax definitely cause, probably cause them so they're not panicking every day. Exactly. 
So three of the boys in AIC were actually stateless. I didn't know this was a thing, but it basically means you're not considered to be a national by any state or country, making it harder to get basic benefits and rights as well as making it hard to travel. What? It's kind of like some people think like refugees, similar oh, okay. to that. Like you don't really belong anywhere. It's weird. I don't really understand how that happens. <laughs> But after the rescue, all four of them were given Thai citizenship, and the Thai government actually vowed to end statelessness there by 2024. Oh, good. Well, weird. Yeah. <laughs> it's, Wait, it's so very is this weird. like being a refugee without a citizenship in the place? It's kind of not, you don't have a citizenship anywhere. Oh my gosh. You just live there. So like, it would be hard for them to travel for like their soccer games and stuff. What the fuck? I know, I didn't know that's a thing. So it brought up some like, legal issues that were not being covered they're like yeah clearly <laughs> these kids don't belong anywhere so unfortunately in december of 2019 another thai navy seal birit pakbra died of a blood infection that he contracted a year earlier while aiding the rescue Wait. so not one but two people died how did he contract a blood infection you think i don't i was trying to find more research on him i couldn't but i'm assuming maybe he like scratched himself or something uh -huh. and got infected but yeah. he was like ill for a year before he died of this yeah actually um it must have been a wound that he had that went into his bloodstream then mm -hmm. yeah wow. i didn't even know that happened like i'd heard about the other guy who like was unconscious but i didn't hear about this until wikipedia because he was alive for like a year after was he in the hospital all the time you think uh, I don't know about the whole time, but at least at the end, maybe, like, it started getting really bad, and he went yeah, to the hospital. Maybe it was a slow, slow coming on to mm -hmm. him, and then, wow, that's sad. Yeah, about 10,000 people in total helped in some way through rescue over those 17 days, including more than 100 divers, representatives from about 100 government agencies, 900 police officers, 2,000 soldiers, and even more volunteers. In 2019, a movie had already been released about the rescue called The Cave. I think it's like an Irish film. I don't know if it was like a big blockbuster. And so. uh, but MGM also has the film rights to make it into like a studio movie, though there's no set date for this yet. Oh, so, so be expecting Americanized version of it with like I was gonna say like twelve little white boys <laughs> who are getting <laughs> rescued. Probably. <laughs> yeah, um, that's my story. I have a question. Did you have any like? Was there any interviews done on the kids that were publicized, like their experience or like? Or even, like, the coach after they got out. Yeah, but a lot of them, um, like, they don't speak English, obviously. And it's not all of them have subtitles on them, so. Oh, it's a lot of yeah. news articles. But that is how I, I read, like, an interview with them. And that's how they found out that they were not there celebrating somebody's birthday with a huge amount of food. Because they were like, no, he just happened to have his birthday while we were there. Oh, okay. <laughs> it was lost in the translation. Yeah. That's <laughs> playing telephone. Yeah. Damn. That's crazy. It's crazy, too, and, like, both of ours that, like, the, I mean, yours, the protagonist, kind yeah. of in the story, like, they survived, but then there was, like, two other people, people died. died. And then mine, it was one person versus 90. Fuck, I know. Oh, it's my turn? Yes. <laughs> Get it, baby. <laughs> so, I'm going to talk about Tom Con Connolly. I'm pretty sure. Did I read it right? Connolly. I thought it was cool. funny because whenever we did the table of contents earlier, you said Tom Con Connolly, and right now you did the same thing, Tom Con Connolly. It's because I'm not confident, so I like stutter. Oh, I stuttered no, my name Connelly. several times. Connelly. I try to rush through mine to be like, pretend that this sounds Thai. <laughs> <laughs> so Tom lived in Cofill in Bread. Bre bread. Yep. Oh, that's quite a name, Bedfordshire. <laughs> 
He lived in England. That's yes, basically. We're going to say he lived in England. He lived in England. Some part of England. I don't even know England. Bedfordshire. Bedfordshire. Mm, sorry. <laughs> Ew. I'm glad I'm not going to be on this podcast because I just embarrassed myself so bad. <laughs> Damn. <laughs> as a 21-year-old, he had been working as a tree surgeon. What's a what a- now? <laughs> What's a tree surgeon? A tree surgeon is a person who prunes and treats older damages trees in order to preserve them. Oh. So they like... I didn't know that was like a career path. I guess it is. Okay. (laughs) But they like cut it in a way that like doesn't harm it. Mm -hmm. So it like continues to grow. Oh, that's cool. There must be like a lot of those in like the Redwoods tree (laughs) surgeons. I'm going to the Redwoods soon. (laughs) Yeah, let us know if you see any tree surgeons. Yeah, I'll keep an eye out on all... I'm going on a road trip for, like, almost two weeks. Um, staying away from everyone, don't worry. I'm just going to, like... We're going to go hike and shit. And I will keep an eye out for tree surgeons everywhere I go. <laughs> like, excuse me, sir. Are you a tree surgeon? <laughs> they probably call them something Tom else Conley. here. <laughs> they wear, like, camo scrubs. <laughs> they do what? Camo scrubs. Just, like, hospital scrubs. <laughs> oh. camo, because nature. Not to scare the other trees. <laughs> They don't know. <laughs> he had been working for almost three years with the BTS group. And no, not the, the K pop. <laughs> he was also a Korean pop star. No, he wasn't. <laughs> the BTS group was based in Sulfic. Another. We all know England. where Sulfic is, so he's great. No, God, no, Brandy. <laughs> it was a joke. Uh- <laughs> Mine was a joke too, and I thought you didn't get it. So I, ex- I did get it. I expanded on it, and I regret it. <laughs> in April of 2011, Tom was 50 feet up in a horse chestnut tree, cutting a branch, when he lost his footing and uh. nearly beheaded himself. <gasps> what do you mean, nearly beheaded himself? I oh forgot God. what our topic was this week, so I actually didn't know where this was going. <laughs> The 12-inch blade of the chainsaw no. sliced through no. his neck and arm. <gasps> While I was on? <gasps> yeah. Because he was, like, in the middle of cutting a branch. And he was 50 feet up? Yeah. I don't know what to do. <laughs> feel overwhelmed. So, into his neck and his arm. Me and Leah's story is there wasn't serious injuries. I wasn't... <laughs> I mean, you said freak accident, so yeah, I went I, for that's it. the freakiest of accidents. <laughs> Jeez. Oh my god. I see we're getting gory today, aren't we? <laughs> Sorry. I'm just you're kidding. You're fine. Numerous blood vessels in his neck. God damn sick. it, Brandy. <laughs> we're not talking about blood vessels right now. <laughs> Michelle, plug your ears. Disclaimer, I didn't think we were going to need one this episode. I'm sorry. Oh my I'm god. just like so bad at saying disclaimer. because like, You should know this. by now, but with my story. Whatever is Brandy, you choose the most like violent one. Are you too? Those are the most interesting, are they not? <laughs> You're a sociopathic bitch. <laughs> I guess. No, they are kind of interesting. <laughs> oh, and your your other mystery one where you are like, their eyes were gouged out for no reason. <laughs> I'm like, oh, Jesus, the, Brandy. I can't even Mysteries say Mysteries and it was a mountain. The, the, <laughs> the, the yeah. Rat Love Pass. Yeah, that one. Yeah. You remember how to say it? I know. <laughs> I think I heard it in right, something tell lately. Tell us about these blood vessels. Okay, just maybe repeat the sentence. <laughs> Try again. Michelle, plug your ears. I know. I need to hear. Plug your mouth hole. <laughs> what? <laughs> I said plug your mouth hole. Jesus Christ. Did <laughs> you just go? Numerous blood vessels in his neck were severed, including <gasps> his jugular vein. No! 
Brandy! Miss Jo- What? With a chainsaw? Yeah. <laughs> the moment of silence. <laughs> Leah is holding onto her neck. I'm just covering my mouth on top of my mask, smothering my voice. Wow. The blade missed his carotid? Cor I know what you mean, but I don't know how to say it. I don't know how to the say it. The main one. The, the artery? Yeah, the artery by just one millimeter. Jesus Christ. <laughs> to put it in perspective of how close he was to death, think of the thick thickness of a credit card. Please do not compare this man's neck to... <laughs> no, like, that's how close he was to, like, dying, be, like, dying oh my God. instantly. Wow. Isn't the jugular a pretty big one to cut yeah. to? Yeah. But, but the, the other one carotid, carotid, like, instantly. instantly. I love that you guys both say it, like, completely wrong. Yeah. Each are like, karara. <laughs> both you come... The karara is actually... Like, corroded, corroded. I know it's not corroded. <laughs> Brandy and I listen to a lot of true crime in, in our time. Carotid. I no, want I it. It's like in my head. Carotid artery. Carotid. Carotid. No. <laughs> Definitely not that one. Can I see the spelling real quick? Where? Where are you putting? Oh, up here. You're like, find it, idiot. <laughs> Carotid artery. Carotid. That sounds right. Carotid. <laughs> Carotid. Sounds like a La Jolla trail. <laughs> Carotid. <laughs> your first fake laugh, then your second laugh, and you really understood what I meant. You're like, Carotid. <laughs> Oh! <laughs> okay, Brandy. Um, in an article I read, Tom said, like, he just re was recounting everything. He was like, it was an everyday job that I had done hundreds of time before, times before, but I was halfway through cutting the tree trunk when my foot slipped and I rolled into the chainsaw. I was he rolled into the chainsaw! Oh. <laughs> I can't handle this. I was left dangling in the air, and I could see blood dripping from my arm. Uh-uh. Oh, was he, like, harnessed or something, or mm -hmm. what? <gasps> I went into shock, but the adrenaline kicked in, so I didn't actually feel any pain. Oh, I screamed God. for help, and my colleagues quickly got me out of the tree. I was just gonna say, he have co-workers? Hey, can <laughs> yeah, you imagine did. seeing him hovering there, attached to his harness, like, dripping? Like, he's oh. probably, like, pouring blood down. I know, oh, he yeah. says dripping, I'm like, bro, that hate your jugular, like. <laughs> No, in another article I read that his coworker and friend Rob, he looked up because he like heard him and um, he saw something drip down and I guess he was saying that at first he thought it was like oil from the chainsaw uh, and then he realized it was blood. Yeah, like probably splashing a little bit. But huh? like Jesus, Leah. They, Sorry, but that's a lot of blood. Sorry. Probably like a little pool, huh? <laughs> it's like a little swim, Rob. <laughs> Need some divers from a shell story there. <laughs> <laughs> my friend Rob told me to put my hand across my throat and hold on to my head, and it was then that I realized my neck was bleeding too. Uh, I later, I later realized I'd nearly cut my head off. So I, I am incredibly lucky to be here today. Jesus Christ! A doctor said later that Tom would have died from blood loss within three minutes if his colleagues hadn't acted so quickly. Three to, like, minutes. Get him down. Oh my god, what did they, did they, whenever they come down, they just like fucking stomp on his neck, keeping him down. <laughs> <laughs> stomp on his neck. No, yeah, they brought him down and they it. did like. I don't know, how do you not pressure. accidentally strangle him while doing this? <laughs> I don't know. It's a bad place to have a wound. That's exactly what I was thinking. Like, what if they look, he strangled him? They'd be like, oh fuck, it wasn't us. <laughs> He had been airlifted to the hospital, but by that time, he had lost six pints of blood. That's a lot of blood. Pints? Like a pint of beer? Like a pint glass. Well, 
Oh, that's just, Leah, stop comparing it to like <laughs> drinks and pools I, and nasty I'm just, things. You said pints. I'm just thinking when I worked at Applebee's, what a oh, pint is when Jesus I serve beer. Bro, six those of those? are big. Oh my god. Six. Get this man a blood transfusion immediately. <laughs> <laughs> Surgeons were able to save him after performing vascular surgery, which included 40 stitches. My neck hurts listening to this. (laughs) Incredibly, he was discharged after five days in the hospital. Only five? This bitch was almost beheaded. Yeah. And within five weeks of his freak accident, he was back at work doing a desk job. Oh, good. I thought you were going to be like, he was back in the trees. (laughs) No, but he was eager to return. This motherfucker, dude. He's like, get back on the horse. Get back on the chainsaw death tree. <laughs> um, he had over 10 hours of surgery. He was even transferred to a different hospital where he was given a nerve graft to repair the severed nerves in his shoulder. Oh, my God. I um, hate hearing about nerves being severed. There's just something about that. I gotta say I'm not I a fan. I feel like it hurts. Yeah, I would imagine, too. <laughs> I think mean, it's the word severed. Yes. My bad. Uh, <laughs> cut nerves. I think it's just the nerves. I think it's just the nerves. Doctors hope he would eventually regain 90% mobility in his arm, which he did eventually. Oh, good. While recounting what had happened to him, he said, I thought if they sedated me and I closed my eyes, I would never wake up again. I was later (gasps) told that the cut was so big, the medics could see the top of my rib cage. What the fuck? That's scary. I looked up a picture of it. Oh, yeah. he has. That is a... Big boy scar. Yeah, he has. I think it's. They said it was fifteen <gasps> inches, like from each point. Oh my god! It's like almost totally across his like chest. Holy yeah. moly! Like his whole neck and, and it was like deep too. Oh, oh fuck! What? What? Okay. <laughs> I wish I didn't look it up. It's not even like a gory picture. It's just a scar. But just imagining it's how just it was a in the big moment. Ass scar. Whew. His mother Debbie said in the same article, he was always ex. He had a little bleep bleep. She said that. Yep. <laughs> he has always been accident prone. He broke his leg when he was one. <laughs> In the womb? <laughs> I was gonna say that'd be a good episode name, but I don't even know how to spell that. <laughs> In the womb. He was a one. How does a one-year-old break their fucking leg? Hey, it happens. My sister Easy. broke her arm when she was two. Shit. Little kids are so accident-prone. Well, I'll just repeat. He broke his leg when he was one, and he was always in and out of A&E, which is accident and emergency. Jesus Christ, this dude. Why would he choose this job? <laughs> For real. He has scars under his chin and his forehead from childhood accidents. What? I'm frightened about him going back to work as the as a tree surgeon, but I know it's the job he loves. Oh, for a second, I forgot this is a quote, and I thought you meant you. And I was like, I'm frightened too, Brandy. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I mean, the chances of that happening a second time in this life are probably pretty Swear small. to God, Tom, if you let this happen again. <laughs> Just like how, how you guys thought with my story that she had gotten into two separate incidents of being in a plane crash and then yeah, also was another like- time that's what are the chances yeah. you know there's people who shit like that happens yeah so he gives many thanks to his colleagues who reacted quick quickly and to the mag magpas team the magpas team air ambulance is an emergency medical charity that provides pre-hospital emergency care in the air or on land including treatments normally only available in the hospital oh 
So they're like hardcore EMTs. Mm. Yeah. Nice. But on a helicopter. So they're cooler yeah. than EMTs. Mm-hmm. Basically. <laughs> Tom is now an advocate for the MAGPAS team and is urging the public to support the Air Ambulance Services annual Orange Day on May 20th. Oh. People can get their workforce, school, or social club to wear something orange and donate one euro. Or they can raise sponsorship cash with ideas such as sitting in a baked bean bath or eating I'm sorry. <laughs> I didn't understand that. Me taking our time to process like sitting in a baked bean bath. I didn't, I don't understand that. So it's that. like those little viral challenges. I guess. Yeah. You know how over here it's the, you, the dunking one where you throw a baseball? I guess over there is you take, take a baked bean bath. <laughs> All righty. <laughs> okay. Or eating only orange foods for the day. I mean, that was easier. Just get a bunch of smoothies. <laughs> no, no, I was thinking Cheetos. Oranges, Cheetos. Oh Cheeto my god, pops. I wish I could eat Cheetos. Cheese Cheeto balls. Pops. Cheese. Mac and cheese. Mm-hmm. Vegan versions of all of those. <laughs> Carrots. Ew, Carrots. fuck no. Carrot cake. Carrot cake. Ay, I can make that vegan. With the orange <laughs> frosting? Yes. <laughs> Precisely. Tom has said... It is really important to support this local cause as no one knows when we might need their help. The doctors and paramedics had the specialist knowledge and equipment needed to save my life there and then. Without MagPass, MagPass Air Ambulance, I wouldn't be here. Damn. Mag- Maybe our coworkers give them some credit. He does. Oh, But sorry. this is just like... <laughs> he, he Specifically does. for them. Specific, well, because he just wants people to like donate. Support them. Support yeah, them. yeah. Well, my bad. <laughs> um, because MagPass relies on public donations to keep going and expert doctors and paramedics volunteer their own time oh. to bring crucial care to patients in life-threatening emergencies and accidents. Oh my god, I was wondering, like, why do you need to bring that much attention? That's crazy. Yeah. They're just based on, like, donations and mm-hmm. stuff. And, like, doctors. Why don't they have some actual, like... Funding? I don't know. Funding for that. We have that in the U.S., right? I mean, there's always helicopters. I don't think we have, like, like airlifts that extensive, though. Because they said, Brandy said, like, they have, like, a bunch of shit on there to treat them, right? Yeah. yeah. I don't think that's a common thing. Maybe not. I think it's more to hold them off until they get to the hospital. I feel like it should be, like, a thing. Mm-hmm. Like, I agree. funded and... Like a little operating They should make yeah. a little bill to try to like make a law a that they have to team. pay for it. Maybe. Taxes. Tax them. That's a good way to spend your taxes. <laughs> Within the span of two years, the charity had been called out 326 times to incidents. These incidents range from serious road traffic co- collisions Oof. to heart attacks. Oh. Yeah, so they, they do, like, anything. Nice. It's pretty pretty cool. You can get a fundraising pro- pack for MagPass Orange Day by emailing info at magpass.org.uk. How do you spell oh. MAGPAS? M-A-G-P-A-S. Oh, I will put that in the bio, too. Reminder mm-hmm. to yourself. It's pretty cool. Yeah. yeah. Thank you, MAGPAS. Thank you, Brandy. Thank you, MAGPAS. <laughs> Sounds like you're talking to a person. Well, basically. They're an entity. And Tom, be careful. Yeah, please, Tom. Please, God. Maybe find a better career. <laughs> uh, thank you guys for listening. Leah, do you have any final words? Farewell, my sweets. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> I mean, there's 
Most likely. Oh, um, you don't have to make a speech. No, no. Jesus. Just, it's not a speech. I was going to say most likely I'm going to be, like, popping in for randomly some episodes. Maybe not talking, but definitely we'll come by and listen to you, you guys. silence. Yeah. <laughs> no, I'll do some commentary. I, like, I feel like I don't like the speaking as much, but hearing you guys tell your stories, I like hearing them. You know? It's the research that was a you little heavy on me. You hear it when the episode comes up. Exactly, Damn, like everyone Brady. else. All right, I guess and I was going to say, just like I suggested to you, you could just come and listen every week, and you're like, actually? <laughs> uh, yeah. So now you were lying to the listeners before no. you leave. <laughs> I said personal reasons, but uh, no, also, I'm in the process of trying to find a job, and I just know that with school and a job, like, eventually I was going to have to step out of the podcast. Eventually you have to drop out of school. <laughs> to do the podcast full time. <laughs> if only I'd be so down. I wish we could do this full time. Oh, that'd be amazing. Oh. I would go much more my brandy's oh, fucking playing video. You guys, we have not even said bye yet. You know what? Goodbye. Oh, bye. Wait, bye. Oh, bye wait, everybody. Our, I forgot. If you want to email us <laughs> <laughs> My bad. Our email is talesfromroundpodcast at gmail.com. Our website is talesfromroundpodcast.com. Our Instagram is talesfromroundpodcast. Our Twitter is spooky underscore beyond. Now we say bye. <laughs> bye, bye, guys. I'll see you in another lifetime. Jesus Christ. Just kidding.